Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Forum for Philosophy. This event is about immigration detention. As you may know, the Forum for Philosophy is an educational charity. We host free public events, and we also produce podcasts and run a philosophy blog. We are funded by donations, so please do feel free to support us via our Just Giving page, which you can find on our website. And while you're there, do check out our list of exciting forthcoming events. Tonight's event is being recorded, although we do ask that you don't take photographs. Uh, Please do wait for the roving microphone when you're asking a question. Please also turn off your phones or put them on silent, but do feel free to tweet along with us. You can see our hashtag there. It's hashtag LSE Forum. Now on to our discussion. Thousands of foreign nationals are held in immigration detention across the country. Some are detained on arrival, others after having lived here for years. Some will be deported, and others will be released. Currently in the UK, there is no time limit on how long a person can be held in immigration detention. Tonight, we're going to be reflecting on the politics and philosophy of immigration detention. We're going to be thinking about what this practice reveals about systems of migration control, about conceptions of political membership, respect for human rights, and the ideals that supposedly animate democratic political institutions. My name is Sarah Fine from the Department of Philosophy at King's College London, just over the road, and I'm a fellow here at the Forum for Philosophy. I'm delighted to be chairing tonight's panel, and now I'll introduce our fantastic panel of um, volunteers. So at the far end, we have Mishka. Mishka is a member of Freed Voices, Freed Voices is a group of experts by experience committed to speaking out about the realities of immigration detention in the UK and calling for reform. Mishka is not his real name, and he asks that we don't take photographs of tonight's event. To my right, we have Professor Mary Bosworth. Mary Bosworth is Professor of Criminology, Director of the Centre for Criminology, and Director of Border Criminologies, and a fellow of St. Cross College at the University of Oxford. She's also Professor of Criminology at Monash University. And in the middle, we have Professor Matthew Gibney. Matthew Gibney is Elizabeth Colson Professor of Politics and Forced Migration, Director of the Refugee Study Centre, and Official Fellow of Lineker College at the University of Oxford. Thank you all so much for joining us. So I'm going to ask our panel a series of questions, and in the middle we'll be breaking for participation from all of you. So the first question I'm going to ask tonight is, what is immigration detention, and what role is it supposed to serve? And could we start with you, Mary? Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you for inviting me, and thank you, everybody, for showing up on this wet and windy evening. The short answer is, of course, that immigration detention is an administrative form of custody in the immigration system that is used to hold people in the United Kingdom, at any rate, mainly pursuant to deportation. So it's a system of custody that is primarily designed to hold people in order to facilitate their deportation. 
You can also be placed in immigration detention while, under certain circumstances while your asylum claim is being considered and also under certain circumstances while an identification process is underway to determine uh, your nationality and whether you have the right to be in the United Kingdom. Um, it works differently in different countries, of course. So in the United Kingdom, primarily immigration detention is used for people who have come to the end of their migration process. That's what it's designed for, and it's designed, as I said, to, to facilitate their deportation. In other countries, it's, it's used often as a point of entry. So if you arrive and there's something with your documents um, or, you, or indeed you claim asylum, then you may be placed in detention. And so Australia, for instance, um, used to do that quite a lot. They now have a fairly complicated system of immigration detention, which mm. we may get on to, called mm. community detention. Um, but anyway, so one of, the, one of the difficulties about talking in general about detention is that it varies enormously country to country. Um, and the sort of model that's in my head most of the time is the British one, because that's where I do most of my research. But if I was to, to think about the United States, for instance, where my colleague Yolanda, who's sitting at the front, uh, has a lot of expertise on, I would be having to think about a whole different kind of set of institutions, uses of tents, detention of children, separation of families, all of those sorts of practices. Um, I go to Greece quite a lot, and their detention works slightly differently. It's very much an add-on to the reception centre process, so there's a lot of fluidity between the asylum-seeking process um, and the detention process. Um, so what detention is, is surprisingly difficult to really put your finger on, actually. Thank you very much. Could, could you just tell us a little bit about these kind of words that we hear a lot around detention, like immigration removal centres? We know some people are being held in prisons. What are these different facilities and what are the different rules governing them? Okay. So currently in, in the United Kingdom, there are seven immigration removal centres. They've been called immigration removal centres since 2001, and the, the, the name is meant to signify their purpose, that they're there to remove people. Um, and immigration removal centres are, by and large, built to prison design, but they're not prisons. Even when they are sometimes run by the prison service, they're still not prisons. So they run according to the detention centre rules, um, and everybody who's in a detention centre is not serving a sentence, um, they are there as a, because of their immigration case. You can be a detainee in a prison, and almost always that would be because you are a foreign national. Um, this has been flagged during your prison sentence. This, this process is now embedded in the prison service, so you're asked very early on what your citizenship status is, and if they don't believe you, they, they check. Um, and so you can be held at the end of your criminal sentence in a prison under Immigration Act rules. And so you're not a prisoner at that point, even though you are actually in a prison. Okay. Thank you very much. Nishka. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great to be here today. And I think Mary gave a brilliant introduction about what is immigration detention. From my side, I would say immigration detention is, I can describe it as holding people in prison-like settings for the administrative convenience of the Home Office, and the government says, I mean, to facilitate the removal of people who do not have a right to be in this country. Uh, 
But having said that, I thought maybe since Mary gave a I mean, good introduction about what's immigration detention, I thought I'm going to break down the ideal definition of what um, the government is using. They say like immigration detention they, is a practice they use to facilitate the removal of people. And they also say like, I mean, we detain people only as the last resort. At the same time, they say we detain people only for the shortest time, pos time possible. So I thought maybe I will describe the how it's the way the government is presenting immigration detention and the realities around it. To use an example, I, I can use it like this. I mean, every time I see the Home Secretary or the Home Office, they present immigration detention as a nice, beautiful cake. It is covered with nice, I mean, a lot of icing, cherries on top, but when you cut it, it's a brick inside. So that's how I can describe what's immigration, I mean, the realities around immigration detention and the, how the government basically present it or how they try to justify it. Like I said, I mean, we have like, there are like countless issues around immigration detention, but I'm sure we will be talking about this as this discussion is progressing. But we just break down three things. I mean, the government says they use detention only as a last resort, but in this country, I mean, averagely around 24,000 people are detained every year. That means, 24,000 last resorts per year. So 24,000 is not a small number. In the meantime, they say like they detain people only uh, only for a shortest time possible. But I mean, like Mary uh, described, I mean, UK is a bit unique compared to other countries, especially European countries, because there's no maximum time limit on how long someone can be detained. Uh, as a result, people can be detained days, weeks, months, sometimes years. And in our group, we have one member who re joined recently, he said, like, even I was surprised when he described that he has been in immigration detention for four years and nine months, which is almost five years. Now he's living in the community. And the last thing they say, like, we detain people to facilitate the removal and or deportation from the UK. But in reality, I mean, when I check the last latest immigration detention statistics, 60% of average, 60% of the people who are detained, they are released back into the community. So it's not that simple, you know, I mean, government say, okay, we, even though those people are released back into the community, the suffering for those people does not, I mean, end from there. One good way to describe that experience is one of our members said, like, you leave detention, but detention does not leave you. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I thought maybe it's good in that way I describe the, how the immigration detention is presented and the realities around immigration detention given that, I mean, Mary gave, gave a good introduction about immigration detention. I, do, I thought, like, I do not have to, again, describe what's immigration detention. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Meshka. And Matt? Sure. Um, so I have the uh, deficit of speaking after two good uh, <laughs> introductions to detention. Um, what I thought I might do, though, is talk about perhaps is drill down a little bit to what the kind of uh, perhaps the real motivations for detention are or the ones that are kind of less connected sometimes to the uh, explicit ones and formal ones given by the state and I would I would say there are three types of motivations that explain the use of detention but specifically in the UK but I, I think they have general implications beyond that 
The first, and these are not in order of importance, in fact I wouldn't put them in order of importance like this, but the first is that immigration detention is a kind of spectacle in the sense that it is a way of embodying the toughness, the uh, willingness of the government to enforce strict immigration policies. Now, if we think about something like immigration control itself, members of the public don't get out there standing at Heathrow looking at people come in and come out or counting the numbers and things like that. So they, they only have a kind of mediated view, I suppose, of the extent to which immigration control is actually being operated here and whether it is strict or liberal. Um, but these moments, these kind of institutions like detention, when they come into the media and when the public talks about them, they provide a kind of symbolic or a, a kind of spectacle, a kind of resource that the government can use to show that it is not not treating... Um, it's, not a soft, it's not a soft touch. It is... Um, it, um, it's trying to operate restrictive uh, policies and has the wherewithal and the means to um, do so. Um, and I think historically one sees that after moments of uh, political controversy over asylum and non-citizens, and I, and I can go back to the early 2000s and asylum under the Blair government and then the foreigner prisoner scandal in 2006, 2007, that's when we see deportation rise, numbers rising in those particular moments and much more talk about it as well. So it's used in some ways to solve the credibility problem of the state, I'd say. The second thing, the second uh, feature of deportation that I would bring up is that there's an issue of uh, the efficacy. Um, it makes it more efficacious carrying out the practice of deportation. At least this is what uh, state officials think. Deportation is not an easy practice, particularly for liberal states. It's a controversial practice, um, and deportation helps in two ways. Sorry, detention helps in two ways. First of all, it fixes, it fixes the location of particular individuals that um, could be anywhere in the community, and therefore that facilitates the practice of getting them uh, where the state wants them, potentially getting them onto flights, potentially getting them um, into some kind of carrier that can get them off the territory of the state. Um, and perhaps makes people more pliable to participate uh, in terms of uh, those practices of expulsion because they're worn down by the experience of detention too. Um, a second feature of efficacy, which I think is really important, is that it prevents the social integration of non-citizens. And social integration here and preventing it is important for the state for a couple of reasons. One, because if you pull people out of the community, they don't have those kinds of moral claims of connections to the community that uh, might serve to challenge in some ways the state's account of them being uh, simply non-members uh, to court. Um, and it, it creates them more as uh, people that are, it connects them to criminality and uh, factors like that. But secondly, it also deprives people of the kinds of allies that they might make in the social community who may then come to contest deportation. Um, 
And states generally don't want to be seen to be plucking people out of communities when there are big demonstrations against uh, the uh, removal or the detaining of those people. Now, a third feature, just quickly, that I would mention as well is, and continuously since the early 2000s, there's an, uh, there's an element of deterrence in the whole uh, uh, construction of the detention estate. Um, detention is not supposed to be justified by the act of deterrence, but it is, I think, a very central feature of it. Um, there's a hope, there's an aspiration by the government that the threat of detention will facilitate self-deportation, as Mitt Romney once called it, the idea that people may go home under their own resources or go home under voluntary return programs. Um, and it also just raises the stakes of people arriving and staying in the country unlawfully or, or, uh, or perhaps at the end of a lawful visa. And, you know, uh, Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, said um, about a month ago that she wanted criminal justice policies that strike terror into the hearts of criminals. And I think that offers at least some insight mm. into the way some people are thinking here. And, and if you were to turn that into the realm of non-citizens and detention, um, detention is also a way of striking a certain degree of terror into uh, non-citizens in the policy. Mm. Thank you so much. Um, that's making me think a little bit about something that comes up very much in your work, Mary, about how um, detention and deportation are both a kind of site in which the state shows its power, but also in another way its powerlessness, because detention and deportation, well, the, the final end of removal and deportation require the participation of other states. And in many cases, that's very difficult to secure, particularly where documents aren't available and you're waiting for a long time for states to reciprocate and so on. So I wondered if you might be able to say a little bit about that. Yes, sure. And I guess, I mean, also partly in response to what Matt said, mm -hmm. I, it's not that I disagree with you, Matt. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think these are all important points, but mm -hmm. I do think there is a confounding aspect that, the, that the, as a system, it's really small. And, uh, and it's getting smaller. I mean, there's been a massive decarceration. So at the moment, I think there's about 2,400 people. Um, and also, even the issues to do with long-term detention has also dropped significantly. So the vast majority of people are actually gone quite quickly. That doesn't necessarily mean that their case is resolved. Um, there, there's been a kind of increase in re-detention practices. Um, but there's a kind of, there is a modesty to the system. It's, it's, a, it's a small system. And so it's absolutely the case for the people who are caught up in it that I think these things are relevant, to, you know, possibly deterrence, certainly fear, all the difficulties that, that, that freed voices are so good at, at explaining and describing. But I think we do need to make sense of, of the willingness and the, the desire to expend quite so much effort on, on a system that's actually no bigger than a kind of big inner city high school. Um, and that's a bit which I always come back to. I'm, I'm, I remain actually, despite having done research on this for a decade, I remain slightly confused about what, what people are trying to do. And I'm, I'm leaning more towards the idea that, that there's not 
that may be thinking about it in those terms, about what they're trying to do is perhaps just an oversimplification of, mm. of the state, and that, mm. that, you know, this idea that the state has a plan. Mm. Um, I think maybe, and that probably isn't your view. I mean, you probably don't think the state has a plan, but, but like, I think sometimes I probably fall into that, that era of thinking that. Um, and I think you see this most clearly in exactly what you said then, Sarah, that in the, in the ways in which the system can actually just not work because, you know, somebody doesn't have the right piece of paper or their embassy refuses to give it to them. Um, and, I mean, eventually, eventually they, they probably will get rid of that person if, if they can indeed document them. Um, there are people who I think it's very, very difficult to do. And the difficulty is, is that, of course, the period of time, if there's no time limit, and there's no time limit both in detention and in the community without status, that, that experience just goes on and on and on and can be incredibly painful. But there's lots of moments where whatever the desire has been of managing somebody, that actually quite small actions can, can make that very difficult. Hmm. And what about this time factor? It's something that you mentioned, mm -hmm. Mishka, that we just don't have a time limit. I mean, how, how has that happened? How do we have this system that allows people to be detained indefinitely? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit surprising, to be honest. It has been happening for a long time, unchallenged, but of course now there are like huge amount of campaigns happening around this and this time limit is something that is linked to i would say significant mental health deterioration of people and it's a bit surprising like you say i mean when it comes to other areas of law so we have time limit even under mental health act i mean there are specific time limit someone can be uh, basically detained under terrorist regulations as well terrorism regulations but when it comes to this immigration purpose i mean there's no time limit on how long someone can be detained but and it has been happening so for a long time and how it started is not something i probably maybe started a long time ago i'm not sure how when it started but i would say significant issues around immigration detention are definitely linked to this lack of a time limit and if we have a time limit, I mean, we do campaign for a time limit, but it doesn't mean that we justify the continuation. I mean, we don't justify the immigration detention saying that, okay, if there's a time limit, that's fine, you can carry on with I mean, detention. So the point of, I mean, if we have a time limit, I think it could reduce the use of detention both in scale and as well as both in length as well. As a result, I mean, less and less people will be detained and maybe I mean it could even eventually lead to close of them some close of some detention centers mm -hmm. but I mean there has been like lots of independent evidence supporting the time limit even though the government is not quite willing to listen to it mm -hmm. but I would say the pressure is mounting independent evidence is mounting and hopefully a day will come where the government will decide to okay I mean we should eventually uh, think of uh, introducing us, I mean, a time limit on how long someone can be detained. So, so just on, the, I mean, I think to a certain extent, what one has here is just the resistance of the British state to have anything that, in some ways, constrains itself, any self-imposed constraints mm. in the realm of immigration control generally. Mm. Even if that indefinite time limit means that, I mean, it's not 
it doesn't I mean, it means a lot to the people involved, but in terms of the number of people going through detention, by uh, the vast number are out of detention within two months, certainly um, three months. So at the risk of kind of um, generating more tension with Mary, <laughs> I think we just have to ask about the kind of symbolic purposes then. Mm that detention serves in these cases and the resistance to that mm -hmm. um, uh, that ability to indefinitely detain mm -hmm. and there I would, I would probably come back to this idea of partly deterrence partly spectacle mm -hmm. partly a history of the British state not wanting to be constrained in particular by the courts and to a certain extent public opinion in those realms, a history that uh, is seen in um, other areas as well, but uh, it's, perhaps, it's perhaps become a bit stronger over the last couple of decades. Mm. Well, let's continue this conversation with the audience. In a moment, I'm going to ask our panel about whether or not they think there could be a legitimate version of detention and what might be alternatives to detention. Uh, but does anybody have any questions about what we've heard so far and want to develop some of these themes further? Do hold on for the roving mic. I'm going to call on this person in the grey T-shirt. Oh, yeah. um, wait, wait. Just coming with the mic. <laughs> Thank you so much. Just one second. And do I see any more? And I'll take you right after. Thank you very much. And then you after that. Just here. Thank you. Um, yeah, my question was, if there was indeed a time limit instituted and someone reached that time limit, what then would happen to them? Thank you very much, and a nice short question. Perfect. Um, I was just going to ask Mishka to say a bit more about um, what, what it's like. Um, inside. You've already said a bit about, um, you know, I have the impression that you're not very positive about um, what, what it's actually like but I just wondered what, what there was by way of, like what, what do people do in there all day and um, you know, how, how, clo how closely does it resemble just a prison and w what other kind of um, provision is made for people in those places mm. Great, thank you and then we've got a third question which I'll take before coming back to the panel uh, Hi, thanks for that introduction I'm just wondering where do we see the role of race and racism in this debate? And so, for example, we know in the Australian example, the people who are held in immigration detention tend to be of a certain um, background. And I'm just wondering, is there a, how important is it to emphasize in our discussion of this topic the influence of race and racism? Brilliant. Thank you so much. I'll just stop there for a moment and deal with these three fantastic questions. So first of all, well, if somebody did reach this hypothetical time limit, then what? And then the question about what's it like? We've described it as prison-like. Um, it obviously differs from prison in that there's no time limit at present. Um, so if we could talk a little bit more about the day-to-day -day experience. And then finally, obviously, a key theme in, in your work, race and racism, and where they feature in discussions about detention. Mishk, would you like to start? Yeah, I would say, let's say if we introduce a time limit after 28 days, I mean, I think that goes hand in hand with what's the purpose of detention in the first place. I mean, I mean, if the government, government say we detain people to facilitate the removal, and if the government cannot, de uh, let's say, remove someone within a certain time period, that means the government 
has to release that person into the community. So I believe like, I mean, if the government at one stage during someone's detention, okay, if they realize, okay, we cannot remove this person, you, they cannot use detention as a quarantine facility. It's the purpose of detention is to remove, facilitate removal so that we believe like a 28 day, and because we have like other time, specific time limits when it comes to other areas of law. In the meantime, I think there's, when it comes to home office itself has a time limit. You know, I mean, when it comes to removing or deportation people, they say like 28 days is sufficient for them to facilitate that. If the government cannot do it, that means the person should be living in the community. So that's why we need alternatives to immigration detention, which we will be covering as this discussion is, you know, I mean, progressing. So we believe, I mean, if the government cannot I mean, remove or deport someone, that means the person should be living in the community rather than using detention as a human storage facility. Mm. Thank you. Um, well, these questions are probably more geared to the other presenters, mm. but um, I think it's a good question on race, and I'd be interested to hear Mary talk about the kind of figures on this, or at least the, the kind of construction of immigration. <coughs> facts, well, no facts. Not, mm. because, um, <laughs> at least your experience. But I think, and this is preempting a little bit of what I'll, I'll move on to say a bit later, perhaps, but we have to ask the question of why this liberty violation, which is such a kind of powerful liberty violation, which brings us back to this idea of indefinite detention, mm -hmm is tolerated by the public. Um, and is it because, as seems something that's fairly reasonable, I think, to surmise, because people just don't, in a sense, value the lives of the people that are detained. I mean, in some ways, there's some kind of barrier placed between their, um, their normal understanding of what justice would be and the experiences of these people involved. So we need to ask the, the question, and it's a hypothetical question. We don't really have much to answer it mm. with. But what would happen if it was all white Australians mm. being detained? Would we mm. still be in the situation where we are talking about having some time limits on the use of detention? And I'm quite sceptical about that too. I mean, race is not the only factor here. It's also intersecting with um, conceptions of criminality, um, which, uh, which are at work in the broader prison complex as well too. But I think it's a very good question just to be pinning down this issue of race because it does, I think, run like a red thread through many of these policies where government uh, power seems to be closest to at its centre. Yeah, and your mention of Australia leads nicely into thinking about the way in which detention is connected to Britain's imperial and colonial past and how that's represented through the members of people in detention. Yes, so, yeah. so I mean detention centres are by and large filled with people from former British colonial territories um, but not so many white Australians and New Zealanders and Canadians. Um, mm. It's not just uh, people from the global south, however, it's also um, people from uh, recent 
areas of war, and which again, which some of which are also former British colonial territories, of course. And then there are quite a few, actually, quite a few Eastern Europeans who are who are in detention, and that that population. I was laughing before with Matt because I'm hopeless with facts, so I'm afraid I can't tell you how many of which population there are and what have you, but the Home Office does publish these. You can always see who the top five nationalities are. And it's very common that uh, Polish uh, nationals and also Albanians are, are, and Romanians are, are sort of up there. Um, and recently, before they've restarted the charter flights, um, they were those numbers, I think, were, were going up a little bit because... It's, it's a little bit easier to deport to places like Poland and Romania and, and uh, Albania. So, um, so clearly, on the whole, these are places which are filled with people from the global south. On the whole, most of the people who work in these places are white, although that's not entirely um, uniform. And so some of the ones that are near Heathrow, the two that are near Heathrow, they actually have quite a diverse workforce because, by and large, IRCs, like prisons, hire locally. Um, so your local workforce near the airport are people who live in Slough. Slough is one of the most ethnically diverse town, uh, parts of the UK. Um, so race and racism are there, um, but they're, they're complicated um, and they're extremely interesting in how people understand and relate to each other. Um, just going back to the time limit question, just a, a few points. One is there, are, there is already a time limit for some people in detention. So families uh, with, with children are, have a time limit. Pregnant women have a time limit. Um, and then there are other countries. I mean, one of the reasons we don't have a time limit is because Britain never signed up to the returns directive. This is all now going to be unimportant. But um, that's, you know, all the EU countries, they all signed up to it. They all, got a re- they all had a time limit. The, the upper end was 18 months for a long time, most, many European countries had, had much shorter time limits, and increasingly they, they've stretched it out now to the maximum of 18 months. I have written a little bit about France, which for a very long time had quite a rigid time limit of 35 days and um, sort of judicial oversight in between. France does a lot of detaining and deportation. The time limit didn't really restrain that. France also... Um, at least according to NGOs who presumably know what they're talking about, is sometimes a little cavalier about where they're sending people back to, so they don't always, they're not always completely certain that this is the right document for that person, but, you know, close enough. And they also don't necessarily offer much in the way of uh, community housing and things like that. So there are unanticipated consequences of having the time limit be the issue that you think is going to fix the problems. Mm. Um, and that's not to say I don't support a time limit. I do yeah. think there should be a time limit. But I don't think, as, as Mishka said, I don't think that you could then sort of say, OK, we have a time limit and now it's all fine. Because mm-hmm. that would be wrong. One point just mm. often made about a time limit mm. as well is if you have a time limit, like 28 days, the officials will work towards that time limit mm-hmm. rather than it will become the kind of ED fix. But then... Yeah. I mean, they'll slow things down to and just release people just before the time limit. So, potentially, people the amount of time they spend in detention for some people may increase. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the mean, uh, just to add, I mean, when it comes to 28-day time limit, we say that's the maximum upper limit. It doesn't mean that people are going to be there 28 days. Mm-hmm. 28 days. In the meantime, of course, there's going to be if if it's a proper system, there has to be 
judicial oversight in between so that I mean the Home Office can say okay we have a 28 day time limit so that we are going to detain people for 28 days it's going to be the maximum but in the meantime it can change the mindset of Home Office staff as well if they know like okay we cannot remove someone within this 28 days and that's the maximum time limit that means they can probably release people earlier than that because what happened is like now since there's no time limit Home Office, I mean, they, they know, I mean, we, we can keep people in detention as long as we want, even if there's no realistic prospect of <coughs> removal or deportation. So, but like, I mean, Mary mentioned, I think if you have a time limit, you have to, in the meantime, focus on other areas as well, such as alternatives to immigration detention, mm -hmm. so that people who are going to be released, or maybe like, I think less and less people could be detained in the first place if there's a time limit, and then there should be a system how we are going to manage those people, and that's where alternatives to detention will come, and probably we'll be discussing that in a minute. Yeah, well, that's the perfect moment to, to discuss this issue because um, we've already mentioned this issue of a time limit. So one way of thinking about having a, a legitimate version of, of detention is thinking, well, maybe it would involve a time limit, but now we've brought up this issue that, well, there are plenty of other countries that do have time limits and still have problems. So I, I want to ask you all, do you think there's a legitimate version of this? And um, if not, what are the alternatives to a system of detention? Should we start with you, Matt? Sure. I mean, yeah. So it's pretty clear, I, I mean, why we need legitimation of this, mm. first of all, mm. it's important to remind us mm. of, is because what's being infringed upon here is the basic, the basic liberty rights of people. And within liberal societies, they're defined by, they're supposed to be defined by their protection of the basic liberty rights of individuals and that is supposed to be taken as something that's very serious indeed mm -hmm. as well as those liberty rights that constrain people um, from enjoying other rights like freedom of association freedom to be with their family freedom to work freedom to move freely about communicate with others to kind of make life plans to control their days as they unfold we also know a lot about trauma and things like mm -hmm. that associated mm -hmm. with detention as well so, therefore, we have to ask, is that liberty infringement justified by the end at stake here? We often judge that sometimes liberty um, infringements are justified by the end in terms of criminal punishment, mm. for example. And um, that end, as commonly put, is maintaining the integrity of border controls in the state. So if we look at that from an ethical perspective, we find that political philosophers and normative uh, theorists that look at that question differ radically on that question um, about whether border controls themselves, controls on uh, the movement of people, are themselves morally justified. A lot of political theorists and political philosophers believe that people should be able to move freely between societies and to stop them doing so is to violate a fundamental human right. So for those people, I think you can say almost immediately, there could be a, a few qualifications here, but almost immediately that they're going to find detention um, morally indefensible in almost any circumstance here. 
But there are other philosophers that would defend uh, the right of, of, of states to control their borders and would use various arguments. And it is a widely accepted uh, principle in the public and in um, international law. So then it's worth asking a set of questions about um, um, under what circumstances it could be legitimate. If we do accept that states um, have some rights to control the entrance of non-citizens onto their territory. And I think then the questions that we need to ask and the questions that I would ask is first of all whether detention is necessary as a practice. Are there other ways of maintaining border integrity here? Um, some people have talked about uh, tagging people, others have talked about uh, more open detention centres and monitoring arrangements may actually serve the uh, same goals and, and no doubt that will emerge as a question about whether detention itself is um, even necessary. Um, Another question is, does detention as practised in this state actually really serve the end, the stated end, that the state puts forward to it of maintaining the integrity of border controls? Now, Miska has rightly made the point that lots of people are released from detention after a certain period back into the community. So in those circumstances, it doesn't seem to be facilitating deportation or removal from the state. And also, one would think as well that um, if that end and its serving would be so clear, um, why shouldn't the judiciary or some independent body make the decision on whether people should be detained in those circumstances? Um, so that's a second question. Um, the third and final question, and I'm sure there are others, but the third and final question I would ask is whether the liberty infringement is proportionate mm. to the end involved mm. here. There are certain things we can't do to people, even for the sake of operating border control policies. We can't just shoot them to stop them coming in, mm. um, I hope. Mm. Um, and if we look at the practices of the British state and British governments in um, other realms, if we take, you know, if we draw an analogy perhaps between the holding of terrorist suspects mm. um, without charge, you cannot hold those people for longer than 48 days, right? Now, let's compare the end to control or, um, of controlling the integrity of borders with the end of making sure that people are not blown up on the streets of this city. And look at the discrepancy between the two. Again, Miska mentioned people that have been in detention for over two years here, and yet it's quite clear that people suspected of terrorist offences cannot be hold, um, held without charge for say, anything like that period. There's a huge discrepancy here that's explicable solely, I think, or largely at least in terms of the fact that we're dealing with um, non-citizens. Mm. So I wouldn't rule out that there could be very narrowly defined circumstances where for a short period perhaps people could be detained or, um, or perhaps held. Um, but I think that um, there's no way in which the current policies or anything approaching them could be uh, legitimated ethically from my mm. perspective. 
thank you very much. Because I guess some people might be thinking the problem with the system that we have is that various people get caught up in it and are, are criminalised as a result of it. But somebody like Priti Patel might say, well, um, the system is designed to deal with people who shouldn't be in this country. And some people might feel like, well, there are particular individuals who fit within that category. For example, people who've been convicted of serious crimes. So um, m might it be relevant here to deal with different categories separately? Well, it's possible. And um, I suppose people that have been convicted of crimes is one of the kind of central questions where perhaps you might want to um, argue that they are some kind of special case here. Mm. You might want to look at the nature of the crimes that people have actually been convicted here and not necessarily accept at face value mm. the description that we're always dealing with um, serious criminals here. And we might also want to look at the potential and the ability of the state to um, deport those people before the end of their sentence or perhaps at the end of their sentence rather than holding them in detention. Mm -hmm. If we talk about people who have the right to remain in the state and can't be deported, perhaps citizens, mm -hmm. they're released in some ways into the community. We have to move there, there. Um, sometimes very slowly through, say, a lot of processes. But, but we have at least some ways for dealing with such people. I'm not saying that that isn't mm. an issue that um, raises some particular complications, but, mm. but we need to approach it by taking seriously the value of liberty involved mm. here mm. and not just creating a situation where there's a kind of double punishment involved, where people serve their time and then uh, have to serve more time. Mm. Because foreign national prisoners, remember, are, um, are um, often also the most difficult people to deport. Mm -hmm. So they often make up uh, you know, a, a substantial proportion of people in immigration detention mm -hmm. for long periods. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that you can give a quicker answer, <laughs> which is just... <laughs> that we didn't used to do it. it it's it, unlike, say, the prison. We we didn't used to detain people, um, really, until about 1993, uh, which is when they started using camps. But of course, there are other historical moments during wars when they rounded people up who were from enemy uh, countries. But immigration detention, as we sort of have it now, really is pretty recent, and the scale is very small. The vast majority of people who are in the country who have no uh, immigration status to remain are not detained. They are, they are managed with all of these other mechanisms. So this idea of alternatives to detention, most people are handled through alternatives. Mainly they're handled through reporting mechanisms. And mainly reporting mechanisms work. So I think there is this question. We don't, I mean, obviously we should have discussions about liberty and the importance of liberty and why it might, why we might have a different threshold of, of our expectations of that for people who don't have the same citizenship as we do. However, I think there's just a kind of much more simple way of approaching it, which is that these are very small numbers. We didn't, we haven't always done it. We have a lot of evidence that it's very harmful, it's very expensive, it's harmful also for the officers who work in the industry. 
you know, how much more evidence do we need? There are, there are things that, that, um, that could be done and that are done, and so why not just widen those options? And I think, actually, to be fair, that is what is happening at the moment. I think the, the significant decrease in the population, the closure of a number of the centres, um, it's not that the numbers of people being processed has reduced, it's just that actually the use of custody is currently going down. And do we have an answer to the question of why the use of custody is currently going down? Well, the two, I think the two main uh, reasons are both the effect of the Shaw Review. So there's been, you know, there's been a lot of um, sort of high-profile analysis of, of detention centres and also the, the um, discussion of the Windrush generation and so the, the, the sort of mistakes, the errors that were made where people who actually did have a right to citizenship were, were being detained and so this notion that these centres are simply for people without British citizenship was, was shown not to be true. Um, so I think both of those two cases and, – and, and in many regards, it's very positive news, really, because they, they're quite different, and the, the sort of groundswell of opinion around both of them was quite different. So around the Windrush, there was a lot of activism, a lot of community activism, um, also, of course, journalism. Um, around the Shaw Review, a lot of it has been kind of technical and technocratic, and engagement also by the Home Office, as, by the home office and by the providers. Um, and I think sort of having, having all of that discussion has actually had a visible effect. Now, I'm not sure we could be confident it will last forever and the effect of Brexit and the creation of a whole new population of people who are going to be subject to fairly stringent immigration laws may inspire the government to, to reopen some of the centres that they've closed. But it does seem to me we're at a particular historical juncture where the population is so small um, that you could actually think quite creatively, quite quickly about, about managing people. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, just to add, I would say, I would talk about three things. I'm keeping in mind, I, have, I was asked one question, so I didn't answer the question, but I will come to that. I will answer your question. I think first thing, uh, like Mary mentioned, I have been, I, mean, I heard, hear this uh, one phrase which has been used as a slogan by immigration minister, especially they say, I mean, we, I mean when it comes to pe people who are subjected to immigration control or who are liable to removal, 95% of those people are uh, never detained. So she comes up with that argument. And that means, okay, let's say, I mean, 5% is 24,000 per year. And out of that, you have to, I mean, you are basically going to release 60% of that. And then we have to basically consider, is it I mean, necessary. Mm -hmm. So you have a system that's not serving its intended purpose in the meantime. I mean, there are many other issues like the incalculable human cost and then the financial cost. So I think it's definitely time has come, given that, I mean, we are kind of seeing some reductions or some improvements in, in this, in, when it comes to this immigration detention area. I think it's time has come for the government to, uh, probably focus more on alternatives to immigration detention so that even that 5% that they eventually, I mean, release 60% of, I mean, 60% out of that 5%, do we even need to maintain a detention state given that it has like a massive human cost, financial cost. And when it comes to, I mean, government always say, I mean, you know, I mean, we, they come up with, they try to tell you, I mean, compare the, they often say, I don't like to use this word, they say, okay, let's say, people who have 
committed a crime. Sometimes they use a word, I don't like to use the word, okay, they say we need immigration detention to remove these people. I mean, we believe, okay, it's like this. And first of all, we have to understand the, the criminal justice system and the administrative I mean, convenience of the home office are they two different things. Mm-hmm. Let's say if a British person commit a crime, they have committed a crime, once they have served their sentence, the person is going to be released into the public, the person is going to live into the community, or maybe the person will go through a rehabilitation process. And when it comes to people, I mean, foreign national offenders, in this case, the recent Jamaica Charter Flight highlighted a significant issue. People who have been living in this country for since they were children were subjected to deportation. I see, like, I mean, the Home Office say these people have, I mean, done, like, major crimes. At the end of the day, I believe they have served their sentence. In the meantime, it's wholly disproportionate to take away from their families, children. At the meantime, you know, I mean, 2007 UK's Act made it like automatic deportation for anyone who has served a 12-month sentence. So in this country, if you break it down, a person who has drawn, I mean, let's say if a person draw, let's say, a driving, simple driving license offense can end up in, for a migrant, a 12-month prison sentence. So are we going to deport someone who has been living in this country and then for the purpose of that person to give them double punishment, leaving that person in detention for maybe like for an indefinite time period. So we have to think of those things even though the government say, I mean, what the government says, I believe we do not have to buy it at face value because at the end of the day, the idea is to justify the system, what's ongoing. So, but if we break it down, we feel like, I mean, we will understand, not feel, we will understand the realities around it. This, I mean, basically are much different compared to what the government is presenting in the meantime. We have to think with an open mind when it comes to removing people with who have served their sentence. I mean, government say we have criminals in detention, but we do not have people, criminals. Instead, we have people who have served their sentence. And to answer your question, I mean, I am keeping in that mind, I would say detention is a place where your liberty is uh, restricted. You are, um, you are taken away from your liberty in the meantime, your access to justice is severely restricted. That's also another thing we basically saw when it comes to this um, recent Jamaica Charter flight. So I'm going to use an example. Let's say, I mean, we, I'm not probably, I hope many of you all know there was a significant um, number of news around this Jamaica Charter flight. So those people did not have access to lawyers because there was an issue with the, you know, I mean, a particular type of SIM card, let's say, O2. I'm not promoting O2, O2, okay? So, but let's say, I mean, if you were not in immigration detention, for those people, they could have walked just one kilometer, they can have signal, but since they are isolated, I mean, they are kind of locked up in, locked up in that city environment within those four walls, they couldn't do it. In the meantime, they could have just go and made their solicitor in person, but they couldn't do it because their movement were restricted as a result, access to justice was restricted as well. For people in immigration detention, I believe like quite a lot of people, or probably most of the people, I mean, they do not want to leave the UK for, for a plethora of reasons. So people don't, I mean, people cannot go back to their country of origin for a plethora of reasons. So, but 
in a setting like that, people are quite stressed, and it can come to the stage where people can be pushed from the edge to the point they can feel like com- trying to commit suicide is the only way around. So that's the environment I can describe. In the meantime, you asked one question about how, if we compare to prison-like setting, I would say it's almost a prison-like setting. We have some centers who are like Cornbrook. I believe they are almost category B prisons, and there are some, you know, I mean, some centers like Hamas. Well, but at the end of the day, even if you make those centers like seven-star or five-star hotels, still you are locked up and your liberty is dip- severely, I would say, deprived of your liberty. Yeah. Thank you all so much. I'd, I'd like to invite the audience to join us now. I know there are lots of questions. We've got one at the front here. I'll wait for the roving mic to come down. So I see one at the front. I saw one just behind, and we'll go to you after that. So one, two, three. If we could keep the questions as short as possible so that the panel have plenty of time to respond. Thank you. Uh, my question is to you. Uh, I would like to know exactly as a campaign... Is it on? Oh, it's sorry. As a campaigner, I would like to know what exactly your profession is. Are you a lawyer? Or, and uh, how you see that... Th- I'm assuming that you are very, very involved and you are talking to detain people detained and how you see their situation there do you think that home office officials are treating them fairly and you know what i mean yeah you do, do they behave in any inappropriate way towards them that's why i want to know thank you okay thank you and just behind you thank you hello uh thank you um my question is, what is the role of the private sector in immigration detention in the UK? Thank you. And question over here, and if we can keep it quite short as well, thank you very much. Yeah, two uh, snappy questions. The first one is, there's a lot of talk of uh, people of serving their sentence, but no mention of early release. In other words, their sentence wasn't completed, they were just going to be released early. So, in fact, they should have been in prison. And that was highlighted by two rather unpleasant characters being automatically released and committing crimes almost straight away. British citizens, I hasten to add. Um, The second question is, um, a lot of talk of double punishment, but aren't uh, immigrants under two obligations, not one? One obligation that we all have to obey the law, but the second one as a guest. In the same way, I have an extra obligation because I'm not at home, I'm a guest of the LSE at the moment. So, two obligations, not one. Thank you very much. Um, Yeah, I will ask you a question. First of all, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I do a lot of campaigns around immigration detention, and that's where I learn much about immigration detention, including my first-hand experience. Did you get so knowledge about all that, and in which way you represent those people, and how can you protect them, and in which way do you see home office officials treating them nicely? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, when I wanted to become a became I mean, become a campaigner, so I wanted to kind of challenge the traditional ways of using expert by experience because there, I mean, I usually did not, I didn't agree with the traditional way where people with lived experience are kind of used as tokens. So I thought, 
of course i have my first hand experience of immigration detention in the meantime i'm going to focus around the bigger picture as well the general issues learn about the policies the very set of policies that directly affected me so that i know what i'm talking about in the meantime so that it it helps me to see the issue not only around my personal experience so but in the meantime we have we have like got a lot of training with free voices and we get constant support by detention action so in terms of answering your question by i mean how the home office is treating people i mean like i mentioned first of all let's see if we make detention centers like five star hotels at the end of the day you still have the issue of i mean deprivation of liberty and restricted access to justice a point will come people are going to will be eventually pushed over there i mean over the age i mean there are like major issues when it comes to healthcare in immigration detention and some people i mean i cannot describe my personal experience because it hasn't been read not that bad when it comes to treatment by people in i mean officers in detention but for some people i mean they they have quite bad experiences by the hand of the home office staff in the meantime by the hand of the I mean, immigration detention staff so but whether the, i mean i would say some people try to commit suicide so can we probably that's an indication whether these people have been treated fairly by the hand of the authorities by the hand of the system as well as by the hand of the immediate environment there there because i don't think someone will try to choose that as an option if they kind of if they are being treated fairly thank you and sorry i'm sorry excuse me i have to move it. thank you um i'm going to if i may funnel the questions so if if i could ask you mary about the private sector involvement and then i'll ask you yeah, matt about the double punishment <laughs> thank you <laughs> so the the british system is wholly a contracted out system so what that means is is that the the actual all of the institutions are um contracted out to different custodial firms um the prison service currently runs one so that's the morton hall which is in the middle of the country up near leicester leicestershire um yeah nodding i'm sorry i'm not very good at geography um and then the private sector custodial firms run the others currently it's g4s circo geo and mighty um and that's that's the british system other systems are not like that so so france they are uh, the the detention centers are run by the police of frontiere so they're they're border police who um who run the centers in greece it's also the police in australia it's contracted out but it's contracted out to one provider so circo runs all of them um the us has got a number of providers um and they also hold people in prison so so different countries have different systems it seems to be anglo-american countries uh, so australia canada and the us use private sector and then other countries use their own public sector and it's it's interesting to try and figure out what the difference might be and whether it's is it a different experience to be in morton hall where your detention custody officers are actually prison officers and so go through prison officer training and have careers in the prison service and might see themselves one day you know being a prison governor then it might be to be detained in a center where the the detention custody officers are um are circo or you know circo for this contract but then might be a different uh, provider in the next contract so so yeah that's how it works thank you yeah So on the question of the two obligations it's a very um good question I think 
the idea of the two obligations works on the idea that um, the person is simultaneously bound by the rules of society and that they're also, secondly, a guest in that society, and that's certainly the understanding with which the British government um, works. The idea of the guest grows out of a certain... Um, I suppose it's connected powerfully to the idea that states, again, have the right to control their borders, the moral right to do so, and anyone coming in is a guest in that context. I don't have, in some respects, uh, in some circumstances, I don't have too much problem with that distinction, but there is a rather big moment in which I do have a problem with that distinction. Um, you could, I mean, you could challenge that distinction by saying, are people just guests when they come in or are they right holders of some form? But anyway, let's just, let's just deal with the big problem is, are people, non-citizens in the state, people that don't have citizenship, eternal guests in the state? Or do they, over time, transition to something else, being moral or societal members of the state in question? And this issue presses itself hard upon us in cases exactly like the Jamaican deportations that we've recently seen, but you can find examples of it almost every day across all Western countries where, deporta where deportation power has come to be used increasingly, I think one could argue, against people who commit crimes that came to the societies as young people grew up in those societies, have very much been part, uh, shaped by those societies, may have even gone into school in those societies, and then it's claimed, after acting like a citizen, talking like a citizen, living like a citizen, being shaped by the society in which they're a part, now they're treated as a guest. These people are what one legal theorist describes as kind of virtual nationals, or, um, or which the Australian court called aliens by the barest of threads. Now, to me, that's a legal distinction, and you can hold on to that and appeal to it, but I don't find it very compelling as a moral one. Thank you. That does actually lead us nicely on to this final um, section of discussion, which is around the question of what detention tells us about the ethics of migration control more generally. So we've picked up on this theme of what citizenship means, what membership means. Um, I wonder, Mishka, if you could start us off here on the ways in which movement is contained and controlled and so on. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would like Probably I would start by saying, I see this, you know, I mean, this false narrative. I see it, in personally see it as a false narrative. Immigration detention can act as a deterrent. But I believe it's not because people <coughs> migrate, first of all, for various reasons. It's, it has been there. It's something natural. People move. And when it comes to immigration detention, first of all, I mean, we have to think... Are we going to use immigration detention to control migration? In the meantime, you mentioned like uh, it's about restricted movement inside the centers. Mm. You basically mentioned yes. Mm. And first of all, I mean, like we described, this system, the system which we currently have, has like lots of major issues around it, mm. and that's including the human cost, financial cost. In the meantime. 
uh, we I mean we talk about many issues so I think like I mentioned I mean people move mm -hmm. and I do not think like immigration detention act as a deterrent when it comes to this migration control even though the government is basically highlighting it as a, a way of deterring migrants and mm -hmm. yeah I would say yeah that's really helpful to think about because, yeah, it, it's not going to act as a great deterrent if yes. the fact is that people just move anyway and will always move. Yes. Plus, in order for it to be a deterrent, people have to actually know about it yes. in advance. Um, thank you very much. Mary, if I could move on to you and just think about this question of what detention tells us about the ethics of migration control more generally. That's very... It's a very difficult question. Um, I, because I don't want to be too pessimistic, and it's, but it's hard not to be very pessimistic. Mm. Because one way of talking about it would be words that Matt, I think, was already using before, which is to say that it suggests to us that certain people don't matter, mm. that, we're, that, that we are willing to pay, mm. we're willing for them to pay a price, um, which we might not be willing to pay mm. ourselves. And the problem with that way of speaking about it is that of course it, of course they matter they matter to themselves they matter to the people who know them they matter to us so so it's hard it's hard to find the right form of words i think mm. to talk about institutions which we have a lot of evidence are very painful for the people in them and uh, and for the people who are who are concerned about them um, i think that there are difficulties if you if you jump straight to the sort of counter argument, which is well, if you're not going to have detention, are you going to have open borders? Mm. And I, I, I suspect that that's a, that that's a red herring. That that's that mm. we don't have to have open borders to not have detention. Um, and I suppose one of the things I think about is is about the historical development of detention centres. So so they came about actually uh, in the UK because there was a concern that members of the of the Commonwealth weren't being able to exercise their rights of due process if they were being turned back at the border. And so people wanted them to have an avenue for exercising their rights of appeal. And then they were like, well, if we're going to give them the rights of appeal, we'll, you know, what will we do with it? What, won't people just disappear? How will we, how we manage them? So initially, it was, you know, these were very, very small places. They were in the, in the ports of arrival. They were really just designed as a kind of they really were truly just an administrative bureaucratic convenience that you'd be there while they checked your papers and decided if you could enter or not. And then at various historical junctures, it, it kind of grew and grew and grew. It's still fairly small, but it, it did grow into a number of institutions and into a system. And it seems to me that there probably was a point where somebody could have said, hey, rather than use the decommission juvenile young offenders institution outside of Oxford for holding these people, why don't we put them into that school that's empty or that, that sort of you know, council housing development? And so you see how it ties into other, other discussions that either weren't had or perhaps were difficult to have because we don't have enough housing anyway. So you know, we, we couldn't have put them into council housing. But I think, I think we've sort of ended up in a situation which early on was not at all inevitable. And then the question really becomes for us is do we want to stick with this system or, or are we actually 
imagining that, that there could be something which was radically quite different and, and what would it take to get there? That's really fascinating. I mean, I'm going to ask a difficult question. <laughs> but um, you mentioned that it, it would be wrong just to jump straight from the idea that d detention might be problematic and we might have alternatives to that all the way to the idea that therefore there must be open borders or something like that. And, uh, and I, I think that's absolutely right. But then the examples that you mentioned were around the state deciding who gets to enter. So, you know, at the port, you know, we could have the bureaucrat or whoever it is who says, no, you can't enter, and then we don't have the question, we don't have the issue of detention. Um, but what about the state's control over who gets to stay? Mm -hmm. So once people are already in, and then for whatever, you know, they've overstayed their visa, or, you know, they've committed some crime, and the state decides, right, well, we, now we, we don't want to facilitate your, mem your eventual membership. So, yeah. so at, at, at that point, um, is there a connection between a kind of moving away from detention and moving more towards the idea that once people are in and they're settled, mm. then they just have to be let, <laughs> they just have yeah. to be allowed to stay? Well, yeah, mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I think so. I also really think we, we shouldn't in these conversations always have crime in the picture because mm -hmm. we don't, you don't yeah. lose your membership if you're a citizen, if you commit a crime. Mm -hmm. and, you know, once upon a time, yes, you were sent to Australia, but, but that was a long time ago. So, so we don't do that we anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we came back, sorry, guys. We came guys. back here tonight. Um, <laughs> but, but so, you know, crime, crime shouldn't, I don't really think that, uh, that crime should have an effect on your, on your right to membership. Um, and so, um, unless it's going to have a right on, on our membership as well. Um, so, mm. so um, I wasn't quite sure that I fully understood mm. the other part of the question. Well, the, the suggestion was that there's, there's one aspect of open borders would be control, you know, an alternative to control mm. at the moment of entry, but another aspect of it is who gets to stay. Yeah. So, you, you know, one of the things that states claim a right to do is decide who gets to be a member. Right, but I still think that that could be separated from detention. Mm. You could still have a process about who gets to stay that doesn't require detention mm. because that is, that is what we do for most people. Mm. Thank you. That's great. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, I've really enjoyed the comments from both yeah. you, Ms. Kieran, and Mary, and my kind of role is to be more broad and sweeping um, and unevidenced. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I suppose what it tells me and what I see draw from this, the ethics mm. and politics, is what actually controlling borders really involves mm. in the contemporary mm. world. We, particularly political philosophers and um, a lot, I suppose even a lot of members of the public, when we think about immigration control, we tend to think about the territorial borders of the state and letting people in. We kind of, I suppose, even use the kind of analogy in some ways of the wall, where people are prevented from doing something, but after that they're left to go on and live their lives as they were. It may be yeah. devastating to be prevented from entering, but it doesn't necessarily impinge upon other questions, particularly if we put issues of refugees um, aside um, here, that there are other cases there as well. 
But once we start bringing um, detention um, into the picture, our view changes of what the state is doing here. It's not a wall so much as um, a prison that we're talking about. And the state isn't just, I suppose, um, preventing people from doing things. It's actually in the position of being a tyranny over certain members of the non-citizen population. It's um, taking away their liberty and doing so under conditions that are highly uh, legally dubious, without any kind of, uh, without very little, with um, very little independent oversight, mm -hmm. and for not committing um, a crime. So for me, um, it suggested at least while we maintain this, I, I, I agree it's an open question as to whether there are alternatives around it. But it's mm -hmm. a deep problem for liberal thinkers um, here immigration detention and there's another problem here too and that is and here I draw from other work that I've done but we've also seen examples of it mentioned tonight the way we treat non-citizens here starts to bleed into the way we treat other members in the state now one example of this you could say an accidental example or largely an accidental example is the Windrush case where people are detained and deported who are uh, undoubtedly members of the British polity. And if you look at the work of Jackie Stevens in the US, she has lots of plenty of other examples how the US system drags citizens into it who can't prove their identity and actually are being deported over the years too. But, but an area that I work on where you really see the effects of this, these kinds of actions that are, 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 treat non-citizens as not full legal subjects is the area of denationalisation, the area of deprivation of citizenship, of stripping citizenship, which has flourished in this country. And um, Mary said before she thought, you know, it's unfair to treat non-citizens as if they should be deported. Um, if they commit a crime, when well, we don't do the same for citizens. But we are starting to do the same for citizens. And it's not just terrorists either. Um, the Rochdale Four have been stripped of their citizenship in this country. We do not know where this is heading. And it reminds us just of a kind of old, you know, again, an old liberal idea that the rights of all of us are kind of interconnected here. And I think that detention is a pretty powerful way of kind of concentrating our, um, our minds on the kind of erosion of rights within, even if I do accept um, Mary's point that there is, that it's, at, I mean, for the time being, it's decreasing, it concerns a relatively small number of people, but I would say that it still acts as a kind of apt illustration. Mm. Thank you all. And... We've got 10 minutes left, so I'd like to invite you to join us with some more questions. I'll take a few, and then we'll come back to the panel for final words. So I see a, a question there with the yellow hat, and then I'll come to the white jumper, and then I'll come one at the front in the green. Thank you. Um, so just going back to what Matt said about um, how the state is using immigration detention as a means of exercising its symbolic power. I wanted to see how plausible you thought it was that 
perhaps the inhumane treatment of non-members is a way of controlling members. So just by what you were going there about how the rights of all are connected, um, could it be that the way we treat non-members is the way that the state polices members? This, sorry, I missed that last the state. Um, police and members. Uh, police members. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And yeah. white jumper. There we are. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I have, I have just a question about the situation, like the very recent migration deal between Italy and Libya. Just to know, like, how far can we go with, um, like, accountability of Europe and, like, Italy itself in this particular situation? If I, can I squeeze one more question in? You had a question, didn't you, back there? Do you, do you, if you stick your hand up, wait, wait. Behind you, behind you, behind you. There we go. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to bring up Yarlswood. I was quite surprised that it hasn't been mentioned. Um, and so, um, especially Mary's point about why perhaps policy has changed. Um, from an activist viewpoint, I think that, especially from, I was a student back then, and there was a big protest around that. Um, so I just thought perhaps it's worth mentioning and discussing. Thank you. And finally, here at the front, if we may, I think that's all we'll be able to squeeze in. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was wondering, the we touched upon it already, the difference between the judicial system and the immigration system. So it seems to me that with immigration, um, the, the Home Office and the immigration system is much more freer. Um, people are often dehumanized. It feels like a tick box exercise. You tick the wrong boxes, that's it. Well, with the judicial system, there seem to be much more safety nets in place. So is there any way that can be improved mm. under this government. Thank you. There are four really interesting questions there. Um, who wants to start us off? I can ask uh, her question. Yes. Your yes. question. Yeah, I mean, I would say when it comes to people in immigration detention, I believe the safeguards for those people are even less compared to, in some ways, people navigating the criminal justice system as well. In this case, I mean, when it comes to criminal justice system, we have like judges involved. But whereas in immigration detention, the home office, a caseworker, basically acts as the judge and the jury. Mm. So that sometimes, I mean, as a result, people can be detained by a tick box, like you mentioned, by the hand of a caseworker. That means it's basically about, and of course, I mean, then again, the lack of a time limit comes. Let's say, I mean, when it comes to criminal justice system, if someone is sentenced, the person is going to be sentenced for a specific time period. That's why people say while you are in prison, you count your days down. While you are in, in immigration detention, you count your days up. So when it comes to, that's why we believe, of course, I mean, there should be more definitely independent or judicial oversight when it comes to, to I mean, decisions to detain people in the first place so that there will not be arbitrary detention as well as judges should be involved throughout the process so that even if there's a time limit, I mean like we discussed, 28-day time limit is not going to be the time, maximum time limit. If, we, if there's any judicial oversight in between, maybe a person can be released in two days' time. I'm not talking about re being released. We are talking about the giving back someone's liberty that has been lost through an administrative process. So in that, I mean, like you, I agree with you. I mean, when it comes to people navigating the immigration system, 
especially this country has a massive focus on immigration control and it even the immigration control overpowers many things and that's including basic humanity because people I mean, this country has a huge focus on immigration control so that's why i mean people i people who are basically detaining immigration detention centers on the immigration powers they in certain ways have less safeguards compared to criminal justice system as well and less judicial oversight because at the end of the day the people who are focusing on migration control when they are given the uh, when they are given powers to detain people for that purpose i don't think we can expect much independency from them Thank you and it sort of taps into some of the things that you've all already been highlighting yes. about the contradictions in the system because on the one hand we've got the system designed to facilitate people's removal and so people are treated as sort of dispensable and not worthy of investment yes. and yet at the same time so many people are then released into the community so what's going on Yes um Matt Yeah so just a little bit on the second question and I think that um the last question which I would probably want to connect about how this impacts upon citizens and this mm-hmm. distinction between the judiciary and the immigration um sides of um I suppose detention or um or those two types of um power um I suppose I mean first of all that's why I brought up the issue of deprivation of citizenship because I think if you look at something like that the stripping of citizenship you see it is effectively an extra judicial power it doesn't go through a court it's made by the home secretary in some ways it's kind of modeled on this way in which we treat non-citizens now um there's a long history of that um i'm not saying it's um it's uh it's a new thing but it's been treated outside the parameters of it it has an appeal right um but it's an appeal right that can be easily brushed aside if you're overseas and you only i think you have um now I've forgotten the amount of time I think it's 4 weeks in which to appeal if you don't make it by that time you're finished um and it's very very hard to be successful in that appeal right certainly on the merits in those circumstances so I would just say that there has been this kind of movement over to that realm the other point I would make is that it's kind of helpful to think about someone like Chandran Kukathas's work here who was a professor here at this um at the um The at the um LSE exactly and sorry I'm just I'm just reminding myself where we are I always pause slightly as a sign of respect to the institution um as an oxford person so it's like um, the rock stars is a manchester city <laughs> exactly <laughs> and um i mean he constantly makes the point about how immigration controls don't just impact upon non-citizens they impact upon citizens all the time and in this realm of the um um of detention and the whole apparatus that goes around with that like the hostile environment citizens are impacted upon who's in detention sometimes people that are married to british citizens sometimes people have british citizen children um they're the ones affected by this process too um and um it has a kind of dramatic effect on their lives and of course who's implicated in um in the practices of detention too all of us are to the extent in which we are enlisted 
into the process of border control as academics, as medical health workers, as landlords into the hostile environment too. So I think there's a, um, there's a way in which those distinctions and connections start to break down at a certain point. Thank you. I'm afraid Mary only has one minute, but you have the last minute. Oh. <laughs> Go for it, Mary. I'm, still, I'm still standing. I just wanted to also just to reiterate that, that when we're talking about the effect on members, we are also we should be quite clear that we're talking about ethnic minority communities in particular. So so that the sort of detention, the racialized nature of detention will be having a direct effect on particular parts of the community and also in other sorts of practices. So the police, as they check people's immigration status, we have a lot of evidence that they actually are checking British citizens, but British citizens who look like they mm. might be foreign to a police officer. Um, Yarls Wood, just to, to sort of bring up the issue about women in detention, I think that clearly the, the activism around Yarls Wood is also very much part of um, the activism which is having some effect on policies. I do also think, however, that one of the times when the activism around Yarlswood was most effective was when it was about children. And that's very, that just gives us a sort of slightly depressing note to end on, which is that when children, when you can kind of build up this virtuous subject, oh, we don't want to harm children in detention, then women enter the picture. If you're saying we have a bunch of women in detention, some of whom may have committed offences, some of whom have done these other things, then suddenly it's harder to create public sympathy. And I think that's where the Windrush case was so effective because it, it sort of by, it, it was able to bypass a kind of virtue hierarchy and it was just shown to be something that didn't fit with a sort of British national idea of its own self. And that, that was able, that was used very effectively. And so, I mean, yes, the, the, all the Yarlswood activism, the Women for Refugee Women, all of the groups are, are very much part of the discussion. But I think once the kids dropped out, then they had to kind of rebuild some of the activism so that people were actually concerned also about women as women, not just women as mothers. Um, and in the usual way, and we didn't talk about Italy and Libya, and that's partly because I suspect none of us quite have enough knowledge about that. Thank you so much. Well, first of all, thanks to all of you for those fantastic questions. Um, as Mary said, we're at this pivotal moment for detention. On the one hand, the estate's going down. On the other hand, we'll see what's going to happen now with Brexit. But I'd like to thank our panel for a really rich and informative discussion of this difficult topic. <laughs>